G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, this is the pre-round 15 audio version of the Footyology Podcast. Uh, very good morning to you, Mark Fine. Good morning, mein Damen und Herren. Should I say, das ist nicht ein good morning. I've got no idea what you said, but I know it was German, and I know it's some play on the fact that Germany has been knocked out of the World Cup as we speak. Uh, being beaten 2-0 by the Korean Republic, and they are out in the group stage, the fourth World Cup holder in a row to be eliminated at the group stage of the following tournament. Um, Do you know what the game was known as? What? The Cabbage Cup. Why? Because those two groups of people are famous for their love and utilisation of cabbage. From the Koreans, it's kimchi. I love kimchi, yeah. And from the Germans, it was sauerkraut. Sauerkraut, yeah, yeah. It was called, I, I saw it on social media, the Cabbage The Cup. Cabbage Cup, very good. Uh, I did see the goals, actually, in Mexico. Um, oh, they, so, they were terrible. No, yeah, but Korea scored their two goals in injury time, I think, Yep. as he desperately looks to his son David for acknowledgement. David's with us this morning. David's doing work experience with us, finally. How's he going, do you think? Despite your whip cracking, perfectly, <laughs> perfectly. Yeah, Everything been, asked of him has been done. Yeah, no, he's, he's been with me all week. It's going okay so far, but we, uh, we, we're we only halfway through. Um, all right, let's talk footy. Um, and, uh, yeah, look, commiserations to the Germans, but it's been a great World Cup. Commiserations to the Socceroos, too. Uh, boy, that could be a discussion topic on another podcast. But we're here to talk AFL. Uh, there's not a heap of news around this week, finally, but one story that's just emerged in the last oh, 24 hours, um, and I was on Mungrook again last night, so I heard a really interesting discussion about this, is the formation of a Indigenous past players group and a report and a study that's been done into a lot of Indigenous players in the AFL, current and former and um, quite a large group of former players, including Gavin Wanganine, um, Derek Kickett, uh, Michael O'Loughlin. Um, Des Hedlund. Uh, Des Hedlund. There's a few more there um, that I just can't recall right now. But uh, there's some quite disturbing stuff that's come out of this about how Indigenous players see their AFL experience. Now, you'd like to think that it gets better for players coming into the system than it was for... Kick it, Mickey O, etc., who were doing this 20 years ago. Um, but I must say, reading some of their comments, I've been a bit taken aback that uh, their experiences weren't necessarily as positive as you'd hope. And um, one quote I read this morning was, uh, we don't want our players to hate the AFL, um, which the majority of us do. We don't want that to happen anymore. Um, and there was another comment about Indigenous, a lot of Indigenous families saying to recruiters and people, um, no, we don't want our kids involved with the AFL. They don't treat blackfellas well. I, I find that really disturbing. I thought we were more advanced in this field than it appears we might be. I think attention to that detail, and that is the the particular situation and needs of Indigenous footballers, especially those coming from... And we have to look, understand that there are, it's a, there's a very different dynamic for different Indigenous footballers. Indigenous uh, people that have moved into the bigger cities and whose families are based in bigger cities have a very different dynamic coming into the AFL than those that come from traditional backgrounds. And we've seen that footballers that have been plucked from traditional or, or tribal life have 
not been able to adjust to AFL football. And the names that come to mind are Liam Jarrah, Zephaniah Skinner, who went to the Bulldogs. Yeah. Uh, that is something that uh, a too big a, too big a change in their life to accommodate for the AFL to accommodate. And that, I don't hold the AFL up to blame there. That is a big change to go from a traditional tribal life in Central Australia or in, in Outback Australia and then be plopped into an AFL system in a big city like Melbourne was a, a bridge too far for and has been for a handful of footballers. So I wonder whether that is being discussed. Generally for Indigenous players, if the experience hasn't been mem- remembered fondly, I think that would... Is that talking about maybe... Uh, within the club being subject to uh, racial jokes or racial stereotyping. I think that has come up in the report. Mm. And that is something that the AFL is very clear. There's no room for that, whether it's racial stereotyping, sexuality or religious vilification. That is something I think that all the clubs individually have to be vigilant about. Well, it appears like... um it appears like some uh, white players are far more prepared to, uh, I guess, absorb um, a lot of the lessons that they learned from being around Indigenous players and others. And this Adelaide pre-season camp, which clearly unsettled the Crows' Indigenous players, keeps coming up. And it was interesting, uh, last night at Mungrook, Shelley Ware, who I know knows a lot about what happened. Um, she was saying that the, the, you know, the Crows white players were just as disturbed about this because of the impact it had on the Indigenous players. But I guess, you know, AFL lists... Have, have we got a, a clearer vision as to why, what happened that would be so disturbing for Indigenous players? I can't necessarily get my head around exactly what it is, but I, I think it goes to a view of how... Um, they are seen sort of in a symbolic sense. That sounds a bit airy-fairy, doesn't it? But the point I was going to make is that I guess AFL lists are a bit of a, a microcosm of society. They're not necessarily representative, but you've got a group of 40 people, and some of those people are going to be far more empathic about a particular group's needs and backgrounds and whatever than others. Um so I guess I have some sympathy for the AFL here because I think the AFL has really led the way on the Indigenous issue for 20 years now. But it does make you wonder, is there a point at which the AFL has gone, OK, we've got programs, we've got, you know, welfare officers, um, you know, we've done all we can do. And do they just think, OK, everything's all right, but maybe they haven't sort of gone far enough? Because one thing which emerges with this I think some of these retired Indigenous players feel like once they're finished as players, uh, that's all that football wants to do with them. You know what I mean? Is that is that a problem exclusively experienced by Indigenous players or would all footballers to a certain degree feel that? Yes, they would. And I think the Players Association has really picked up the ball in the last few years when it comes to the whole former player group because there's no doubt there's an issue you know the amount of former players we hear about who struggle with the lifestyle change and depression and and things like that but there's two two major issues there the transition mentally from being a a star and a sort of a hero within Australian community because we put footballers on a pedestal so there's the mental issues and there are also ongoing physical problems experienced by footballers, hip replacements, knees, etc. Not exclusive to professional footballers, but probably exacerbated by the fact that, you know, star players are driven longer, harder and further in the AFL than anywhere else because of club needs. So both mentally and physically, there is a an obligation, I think, for the AFL to look at the welfare of players post-play. I know, I'll just play devil's advocate here. I know there will be a bit of a pushback against this 
uh, news and these revelations from people saying, well, doesn't this sort of um, increase a segregation between black players and white players if you've got, you know, their own representative body and, and whatever? And oh, well, put more simply, you know, there's going to be a, a, a level of, and, and maybe a, a whispered or a murmured or, or you know, a discussion where a derogatory term for Indigenous people used, whinging again, you know. Yeah. So, you know, what do they want? They And I hate that, you know. This is a group of Indigenous players exploring their experience and trying to make it better for the next wave of Indigenous footballers. And it would be unfair, but believe me, it will happen, where ignorant and let's be honest, racist members of our society will see this as another example of uh, indigenous, indigenous indigenous Australians whinging. Which, yeah, no, really good point. And which sort of makes me think that the AFL really needs to be very conscious of this. And I, I'm sure they are. I'm sure they're taking this on board and thinking, what can we do? Because it sort of it dawns on me that football... Um, has become a vehicle for Indigenous Australia, not just the players who end up playing AFL, but in terms of a connection with white society and uh, welfare issues and the and lifestyle issues. That um, it, there's a bigger picture here, which is the AFL. Uh, you know, when you're looking at Indigenous people as a group, and which groups in white society have Offer them opportunity um, and a, a chance to really uh, connect better with white society. Football is right at the forefront of that. So the the danger that these guys feel ostracised from the football world post retirement, I think, is a really big concern because we all know how much Indigenous players have added to football. We don't want to lose that, and if families are saying. You know, they don't treat black fellas well. That's a real worry. So, a, th- a few points that I throw up here. And first of all, AFL football does play a very important role in public perception of Indigenous Australians. Yeah. I mean, I know I work in the football industry, and the only Indigenous people I know are through football. Yeah. Okay, so that's my experience. But if you asked Australians to name 10. Indigenous Australians, I think a lot of Australians would name sports people. So I'd be very interested to know how the AFL experience compares to the NRL experience. There are, you know, equally a a number of Indigenous NRL players. So I wonder how that experience compares. You You know, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, the thing that's occurred to me, just being involved with the Mungrook footy show just last year and, and this year, you know how I always, I'm getting a bit touchy-feely here, but I've always, it's always struck me, say, like Midnight Oil, right? Uh, they went and did this sort of outback pilgrimage back in the mid-80s, and it really impacted on them. And, um, you know, they recorded the album Diesel and Dust, and a lot of songwriting and a lot of experiences they recounted from that moment were informed by their experience of Indigenous Australia. Martin Flanagan, former colleague of mine, he's been likewise. You know, Kevin Sheedy's a good one. You know, guys that actually go out there and, and get among the communities and get to know Indigenous people really well, always it changes their outlook on, on life generally, not just Indigenous people. Just through a very, very small involvement and getting to know some of the Indigenous personalities around the football scene better, I feel like it, it's we barely know them, and I, geez, I, you know, I really don't want to risk sort of cultural stereotyping here. But a lot of Indigenous people I've met through football, you start out and you think, oh, they're painfully shy. You know, I can, I can never have a a great rapport with them because they're so shy. But once you sort of make the effort to get to know them a bit, you just see them completely differently, and it sort of makes me think. And I know it's not practically possible for people. But so many people that have sort of racist outlook on Indigenous people, you, you just wonder if they actually got thrown into that milieu and had to experience 
the culture and, and uh, you know, the learnings of Indigenous people, would it change their outlook? And I'm thinking about this in broader society terms now, not just in football terms. Um, I don't know. How, how, you know, it's a... I don't know how we ever will bridge that gap because I don't think enough white Australians are prepared to go that far to have more empathy with the Indigenous community. So here's here's my experience, and it's through two phases in my life. And the first phase was working actually in the automotive industry where I travelled extensively in towns that fringe outback Australia. And I was shocked by the level of racism in towns that are have a high proportion of Indigenous Australians. And I think a lot of that racism was based on resentment to government opportunities afforded to Indigenous Australians. So I've been to towns like Caratha, Port Augusta, yeah. and that resentment was because, I believe, because of misspent government money being thrown at a problem that needed a lot more than money, needed um, education and integration rather than just throwing huge... Sum- and I'm talking 25 years ago, mm. so hopefully the situation's better. Throwing huge sums of money at a problem which only made uh, the white inhabitants of those towns resentful of the Indigenous community because they were getting handouts um, they felt were not being utilised correctly, but that is a you know that is an ongoing question for governments, etc. So I found it very difficult as somebody who comes from a, a Melbourne, which has a very low Indigenous population, to be part of that discussion. Basically, to be told, you know, don't pay lip service, mate. You've got no idea what it's like living here from both sides of the fence. Yeah. But my own experience with Indigenous people is I, I am constantly reminded of their their greater sense of family and community that I love, that I'm I'm not jealous of, that I'm in, impressed by. I, you know, because I did the Marnbrook radio show for two yeah. years and spent a lot of time with um, a number of individuals, and just you know to be welcomed to them when they say. How, g'day brother, how are you? I mean, it's a deep compliment. And I just love the way Indigenous, the footballers I've met and people that I've met are disconnected maybe through distance, disconnected through family. They're not, they're not even of the same tribal backgrounds, but they all feel a sense of brotherhood, of family, mm. of, that they're all cousins. And I love that. I love that deep sense of belonging that they have for each other, and it's actually one of the one of the um, problems in AFL football. And I don't know whether this report has examined this, but I've also got quite a few friends who played AFL football who were white, and they can't wrap their minds around the fact that the indigenous players at their club have a closer kinship. And you see this at the end of games with indigenous players from other clubs rather than with their own teammates at their club, and they don't get it yeah basically and i think that might be part of a uh, a form a, a schism between those players within clubs that make indigenous players feel on the outer at a club but we have to understand that that sense of brotherhood or or, or greater family is deep seated it's real and it's lovely yeah, couldn't agree more. No, very well put. We've got to wrap this up. Last point, though, and answer this really quickly. I've just thought of this off the top of my head. I've always looked at New Zealand and how the white community in New Zealand um, connects with the Maori community, and they just do it so much more seamlessly and effectively and effortlessly than we do, and it makes me wonder how they've done that. And I, I'm sort of thinking oh, now. It's, a, it's the the answer is based in the history because when there was white settlement in Australia, whites came here and obliterated many Aboriginal communities, and basically um, by force took this country. When the whites settled New Zealand. The Maoris defended New Zealand and there was a war and 
a truce was created, but the whites never defeated or or enslaved or overpowered the Maori population. So it was there was equal footing from the from the get go by the good grace of the Maoris who actually had the power to repel the whites. But they by good grace there was a a um a treaty and a peace agreement between whites and Maoris based on equality. Whereas the kicking off point in Australia was absolute white domination, subjugation and enslavement of the local Indigenous community. It's a, it's a fascinating de- debating topic, but I, I always look at that and think we could look to them and take on board some of the things that they have put in place Only there. with a time machine, mate. Unfortunately, you know, the, when you have a look at the Aboriginals of Tasmania, for example, yeah, you know, their history of, of being obliterated and exiled is a is a prime example of the 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 relationship starting not as equals but as you know master and master and slave yeah yeah no it's not uh yeah it's it's heavy stuff but uh anyway to get back to that football context the release of this report um and this formation of the indigenous past players group i think it's something we need to keep talking about not just for the good of the game but for probably the good of society as a whole let's move on Footyology Media Watch. All right, we love this segment. We know people love this segment. Uh, we've got a couple of things to touch on this week. One, uh, not necessarily negative, one quite positive, actually, and one asking a question. So you go first, Fanny. Well, we speak a lot about special comments, people, don't we? And yep. generally, there are criticisms levelled that um, the sort of bowing to the altar that is the former player. Yeah. But special comments are Big part... Big altar. Yeah, special comments are part of the game, and I want to recognise special comments when they work and when they are executed brilliantly and observed and then backed up. This was on TV with wonderful supporting footage. So what was it? And it happened in the game between Melbourne and Port Adelaide. Last Friday night. Yeah, yep. and at uh, half-time... We went back to the lab yep. with David King and Dermot Brereton. Mm-hmm. And David King in profile, once again, a little too close to Dermot. I think um, David's not... What do you mean, physically yeah. too close? Yeah. He's um, sort of not scared to get in people's personal space. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What are but you he, getting at there? No, I was just saying, David King sort of stands in profile... Um, you know, with his chest puffed out. Well, he's big. In kissing, <laughs> in kissing distance of Dermot. Okay, all right. It was funny, just funny to yeah, look yeah, at. Yeah, yeah. And then Dermot um, proceeded to explain why Jesse Hogan had become oh, yeah, I saw this, an yeah. ineffective forward and the role that he was playing was totally unsuited for what Jesse Hogan is as a footballer. Now, he explained that since Jesse Hogan has gone into the midfield, because he's done some midfield work, his mindset for playing the game seems to have changed. And incredibly, even though Jesse Hogan is six foot four in the old or six foot five in the old and made his name and got selected as a pre draft superstar as a marking key forward, he showed three examples on the video replay or the teleprompter or whatever it's called of the ball being kicked forward and in fact Tom McDonald being the key target and on all occasions Jesse Hogan was acting as though he was a rover he was front and centre and on one occasion there was no Tom McDonald and he absolutely should have gone for the mark and again Dermot showed he'd lost the instinct to be a marking forward and was playing as a rover now these are three great examples. They then crossed to Paul Ruse back on the main panel. Of course, Ruse at Melbourne coaching Jesse Hogan through formative years, and Ruse said, "Yes, this this is a player who seems to have lost his way, and needs guidance back to being a marking forward because that's what they need." Excellent examples, and the situation didn't improve in the second half. Melbourne lost. Hogan had no influence, and that's what you want from special comments, observation. Support. If it's on radio, you won't get that video support, but you can get it through the rest of the game by further observation. Brilliantly observed, brilliantly um, 
shown to the viewer and then to go back to Paul Ruse. That was the complete package of insight into a player and his woes. Okay, so what made it uh, special was the combination of the explanation, the video examples, and then the interaction of a coach who yeah, could it was, put, it was it was a perfect storm you don't yeah, always have you're not going to get that, that formula all but, the that, time, eh? but still the observation was superb you know that that was that that was not common public knowledge yeah that was not rehashing of a well-known fact yeah that was people knew that jesse hogan was down on form but if you would have asked the football public what's wrong with jesse hogan and that includes nine out of ten Journos and former players, they would have said, "Oh, he's just, yeah, he's out of touch." Yeah, yeah, sort of. Um, Why is he out of touch? Yeah, I'm saying there there would have been a range of airy fairy explanations. This was a specific exploration into what has changed. You know what? Well done, Dermot. Well done, Fox Football. Well done, Paul Roots. Well, we're we're both a big rap for Derm, and Derm is a special comments guy who cops more flack than most. And people say, "Oh, he's too verbose," and he. You know, he spends 30 seconds saying something when Tim would do. Yeah, because people don't listen. Because people are so used to not listening, they base what they say on his hairdo, on his on his public persona, and on how much time he spends well, talking. What I, yeah, what I was going to say was that what, what I tend to notice with him during calls of games is he will all he will make a very um, what's the word. An observation that sort of goes beyond the obvious, you know, like something about well, he, he's a deeper uh, exploration. Yeah, yeah, like he, you know, he's leaping and his his right leg isn't sort of taking off. That quite technical stuff, and you can see people's eyes sort of glazing over. What I was thinking then was, and again, you don't always have this capacity during a game, obviously, but if you had the video examples to back up everything that he was saying like that. I reckon people who say all those negative things about him would go, geez, that's right, I can actually see this. He has embraced what a special comments person should be, and that is giving the insight that an only an experienced top-level footballer would would give. And that's not to say that others wouldn't have observed what Jesse Hogan had done, but you know, as somebody who was a an AFL or then VFL, but an, an AFL key position player. What a wonderful insight into what has gone wrong for somebody who should be playing the Dermot Brereton role in 2018. Do you think, just quickly, the lines between callers and comments blokes have become too blurred in recent years? Oh, completely. I, I do. Completely. You know. Um, all right, I'll name some callers that can't call without providing special comments. Bruce McAvaney, yeah, calls, but he didn't always do that. No, he calls, but he's constantly overlaying um, game scenarios and putting forward, um, you know, questions about the game, etc. Basically, running commentary and special comments at the same time. Jason Bennett can't call without providing special comments. Let the callers should just call the game, and I'll tell you what another issue is. There are callers who are calling now on TV who probably started on radio who have to understand that there is a marked difference between a radio call and a TV call. Yeah. No, TV, not TV viewers do not need every element of the play called to them. We can see it. That's where the soccer commentator understands the nuance that is TV as compared to radio. All right, I want to throw up one quickly, uh, which I've been thinking about for a while. We've probably touched on it before, but as a writer, what, my favourite thing to write every week is always the, um, or what on footyology I call Broco's rap, but I did the similar thing for The Age every Monday morning in print. So that's on, we should point out that's on footyology, the website? Correct, .com.au. Yes. Uh, but I, I also write it for the New Daily. It appears at the newdaily.com.au first, and then I put it on Footyology. But is, is New Daily a communist manifesto? It's not. It's a very high-rating news website, finally. It's in the top 20 news websites in the country, as a matter of fact, um, <laughs> run by Bruce Guthrie, former age editor. But quickly, uh, 
I love doing that piece, and as a reader, I've always enjoyed reading those pieces when I was reading other people doing them, and particularly now when there's nine games around, having it all sort of put in context. context. So what was the most significant thing to happen out of the round, you know, and forming it into one reasonably readable narrative. But I, I'm beginning to feel like I'm the only person who thinks that's worth something because the two major papers... Mark Robinson used to do that, and in the last couple of years, that has become a list of things I like and things I don't like, and 10 of each. And I'm not having a go at that, but I just wonder why they've gone away from that and to that list format. Similarly, since I've left the age, they have revamped that into a thing which is called Four Points, and it's four things out of the round written about in a lot less detail. Now, I'm not knocking that either, but I'm just, I'm getting a bit insecure. I'm sitting there thinking, am I a dinosaur? Are people not interested in this, what big picture, what does it all mean for the round? Am I a dinosaur, Fanny? Yeah. Should we, does that mean on the YouTube podcast or YouTube, whatever, vodcast, does that mean we should get rid of hot or not? (laughs) <laughs> because it's not long form. Well, it's sort of that. well, there's room for both. Well, we do do a round review, yeah. don't we? But uh, are, are people's yeah are I, people's attention spans too short now that they can't sort of take in 800 words, which ties everything together? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It Come is. on, I want to be serious. No, but I'm being serious. It oh, is. So you think I should stop doing that? No, you should cater to those people that still have the capacity to read three or four paths put together without bullet points, um, diagrams, uh, animations. Well, that's what I'm getting at. Are there uh, Three things I like, three things I didn't well, like, three well, things I hate, two things I adore, and one thing that made me well, that really worries Vaseline me. and tissues. That, that really worries me. Uh, just <laughs> kids don't listen to that last bit. Um, that really, that's, that's almost what it's become. It's like... Well, know, that's... So what do I do? Do I sort of buck the trend and continue to cater for those of us who can sort of focus on a bit of writing for longer than 10 seconds? Or do I sort of start doing a, I hate this, I like this, or, you know, put it all on, oh, I shouldn't be pointing there, but um, put it all on Instagram and, and uh, you know, with a picture of me modelling something or product placement. Just because people are eating Happy Meals doesn't mean that you need to stop serving proper dinner. Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, you know, we live in a world of, you know, of instant gratification, simple, you know, simple comprehension, true. Sorry, sorry I, was, I was just checking my Instagram. Well, what? exactly. Well, look, you know, true. If you look at um, schooling today or, or the education system, 80% of students are classified as having ADD or ADHD. So the bullet points certainly suit them. Well, actually, I was just looking across to David to see what he thought of that, but he was immersed in his uh, smartphone. Exactly. So, you know, between between personal devices and diagnoses from medical, you know, educators that kids just can't focus or concentrate, maybe there's still a small group of us out there that, can consume things in long form rather than short form. Oh, I hope so. All right, we'll be back with the next segment after I've sent this tweet and just posted this pic on Instagram. On Footyology, previews with Punch. Uh, finally, we're back to nine-game rounds, and a, what a cracker to kick us off on uh, Thursday evening, 7.30, 7.20 at Etihad Stadium. First v. second, Richmond v. the Swans. Some disquiet from the Tiger fraternity that it's not the MCG, but all uh, MCG clubs have to play a home game at Etihad. Uh, who wins it, Finey? Just on this, you know, there was a period in football history where the Swans and the Tigers did dominate. Do you know that period? Uh, early 1930s. Yeah, and it's great. You know, they played in grand finals against each other, and it was. if you have a look at the rest of football history, it sort of stands out as a bit of an oddity until now. Although they did play in the 1977 elimination final. Yeah, the Swans' first final since 1970, and their only second final since 1945. So who wins this one? This game, I'm tipping the Swans, because it is at... Uh, 
the soon-to-be Marvel Arena. Yeah, or stadium. Ar- or Arena. Thanks, Lucy. Um, they've won 14 of their last 15 there. Look, there's going to be some great clashes. Expect Rance and Franklin to butt heads at some point in time. The midfields will be key. But I don't think Richmond have anywhere near the same voodoo hex over teams at the at Etihad than they do at the G, and I'm tipping the Swans. But, uh, Richmond will be very keen to uh, disprove this creeping theory that they're a much lesser team away from the G. So I'm quite conscious of that, and I think they'll be out to make a point. Having said that, uh, let me say this. I think the Swans are playing slightly better at the moment. And they do. For 14 out of 15 at Etihad, they play the ground really well. Thank you, St Kilda. Probably donated seven of those. Yeah, well, fairly... I think the dimensions are fairly similar to the MCG. I think this will be an absolute corker. I don't think there'll be much in it, but I'm going for the Swans by a kick. Let's go to Friday night again at Etihad Stadium. And the Western Bulldogs vastly improved last week against North, taking on the Cats, who are coming off the bye, correct? Yes. Cats coming off the bye, aren't they? Yes. Um, I think Geelong has beaten the Bulldogs about the last 72 times they've played. It's just one of those... No, it's not that, obviously. But the Cats do tend to dominate the Doggies. Uh, and I think the Cats go all right at Eddie had as well. I'm going for them. Another history lesson. This used to be the Derby. Yeah, Geelong's nearest... The Geelong Road. Yeah, Geelong's nearest rival used to be Footscray. <laughs> I always found that odd. Uh, Geelong just have a greater spread of um, quality players. And you know what? The likes of Dangerfield really plays well at Etihad Stadium. Uh, They'll appreciate playing the doggies there and will win, not with a leg in the air, but I think sort of that 30-point margin will be maintained throughout most of the night. Got some senior players starting to come back too. Uh, we're saying we're doing this before selection, but uh, some big names coming back for the Cats. I reckon they'll uh, grind out a pretty uh, reasonably sized win. Let's go to Saturday, MCG 145. Carlton, last spot in the ladder, taking on Port Adelaide, fifth, I think, with a bullet. I really like the way uh, Port are headed at the moment. Uh, again, having said that, the Blues, very respectable last week against the Pies. Never were going to overtake them, but certainly kept the margin down. That's the sort of competitiveness I think the Blues fans are looking for. I think this will be tougher for Port than some people might think, but I think we're seeing a, the start of a, a more resilient Port. I reckon their wins over Richmond and Melbourne last week are particularly impressive. I think they're a lot less flaky than they have been historically. I think they're conscious of it being very important that they turn on a good performance in this game. So I think they'll win by around five goals. Yeah, I think there's a, a school of thought that says this is a bit of a danger game from Port for Port away from home. Don't take Carlton too lightly. Carlton can be competitive. They can be. But Carlton's dangers, I believe, are obvious. You know, they need to lock down on Charlie Curnow. Uh, Paddy Cripps out of the middle, and uh, pay some respect to Cade Simpson off the back line. Carlton were easy pickings for Fremantle a couple of weeks ago. I'm tipping Port by 73 points. 73? Big margin. Oh, well, hang on. You got the 100 I'm good at the big... I'm good 108? At, yeah, I'm good at the big margins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, this is a game which looks less appetising than it might have, say, a month ago, but... Uh, Adelaide taking on West Coast at Adelaide Oval, uh, 4.35 AEST. Can I go first? Yeah, go. Adelaide are a stone-cold absolute certainty in this. I mean, look, I don't know what the odds will be, but they'll start long odds on favourite. Not only Kennedy and Darling out, but now Lacroix as well. He's definitely out. Yep. Uh, Adelaide are set to welcome back some key players. Sloan will be back in the team. They say Laird definitely back in the team. Uh, West Coast. Redpath. I was just thinking, every time I hear Laird, I just think of Bruce oh, Laird. Oh, okay. Go on. Sorry. Bruce Laird. Uh, yeah, they're going to win and win well, Adelaide. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't know Lacroix was definitely out. Um, yeah. 
I, I concur. Adelaide, uh, it's a bit of a statement game for them too, isn't it, given the sort of form they've been in. They've had a, a week to regroup. Um, Eagles, yeah, knocked, knocked off at home by the Bombers. Uh, boy, they can't take a trick on the goal-kicking forward front. And they looked last week to me like a side that hadn't mentally made the adjustment. They kept banging it in there looking for two capable key goal-kicking forwards who weren't there. So they've had a few wins at um, Adelaide over the Eagles, but uh, I don't think I don't think it'll be much in it, but I'm going for Adelaide to win. Maybe you didn't know Lacroix was out because you were watching Fox Sports about eight years ago? No, quick. What do you mean? Uh, when he sort of started his career, but uh, I watched Fox Sports one night to find out that Mark Lecris had kicked... Oh, yeah. Five goals for the West Coast Eagles. And, it, and again, uh, I'll throw in the obligatory, Nathan Buckley resigns. Uh, that was re- Channel 10 reference. and Tim, our mate Tim <laughs> Webster. All right, let's go to uh, the sunny Gold Coast, 7.25 Saturday evening. Gold Coast, the rather hapless Gold Coast, taking on the Pies, who are fourth and flying. Another uh, business-like win over uh, Carlton last week. Gold Coast, I watch that Hawthorne Gold Coast game pretty closely. They keep, the Suns will sort of put in one really good quarter and then if it doesn't amount to much on the scoreboard, it's sort of like, oh well, we're stuffed and they then turn it up and it's, Stuart Dew must be tearing his hair out at the lack of consistent effort. Uh, if you can do it for one quarter, why can't you do it for at least two or three? Um, yeah, I think the Pies will win this one handsomely. Collingwood, the obvious selection, but wait for something that you've never seen in league football to happen early in the last quarter. 69 points up, a rare forward four-way by Gold Coast. Lynch will mark and kick a goal and then be surrounded by congratulatory (laughs) Collingwood players who high-five him and sort of say this is... uh, what we'll do next year which when you is, kick a goal. Which is like Paddy Dangerfield playing for Adelaide down at Geelong. I think it was the last game. They of, were all cheering you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, could be. A, yeah, we could see more and more of that. Um, all right. Uh, simultaneously, 7.25 at Spotless Stadium, GWS, taking on Hawthorne. Big, big game this. Tenth, the Giants. Ninth, the Hawks. Uh, lost to either would put a severe dent in the finals Aspirations, um, of course, the Giants without Jeremy Cameron for the next five games, and that is incredibly costly to a forward setup still missing Toby Green, in which Jonathan Patton just going, you know, it hasn't really ticked over seamlessly. Hawks weren't outstanding last week by any means, but uh, they just, they're, they're going all right. They, they get the job done when they need to. I think they'll lift for this game. Losing Sean Burgoyne's a, a big blow, obviously, but uh, I reckon the Hawks are in good enough nick to pinch this one and really throw some doubt uh, over the prospect of the Giants even making the eight. Important game. Um, cracking matchup, uh, as you've mentioned. Stars out from both sides, Cameron and Burgoyne, key players. Uh, look, I'm going to go for GWS. Why? Their midfield is ticking over okay. You know, Coniglio missed a game a couple of games ago, came back and again was a a forceful member of that midfield. I I just think they'll get first usage and, yes, the forward line is not uh, at its spiffy best, but I think they'll get enough ball down there to craft a win. GWS in a squeak. Okay, first one we've differed on. Let's go to Sunday. Uh, Melbourne St Kilda at the MCG, 1.10pm. What do you reckon happens? Gorn. He has dominated St Kilda in recent meetings, so I don't know whether they're going to play longer or hickey. I thought you were saying Saints, Gorn. Yeah, well, they never <laughs> were there, so don't worry about it. Uh, St Kilda will put a better team on the field, by the way. I think Blake Akers might be ready to come back. The week break, we'll see a few Saints return. They're going to be pretty competitive for the rest of the year, St Kilda, but Melbourne uh, are their masters at the moment, and MCG, Gorn... Uh, by the way, St Kilda play the MCG quite well. Mm. Billings plays better at the G than at, at Etihad. I tip Melbourne a, a good arm's length win. Not a thrashing, but never in danger. Yeah, I'm going for Melbourne comfortably. Uh, need the win. These are the sort of games they've got to bank. Um, what did the Saints do last up? Came back and beat Gold Coast. Oh, yeah. 
Well, it was a good. Yeah, it was. It was. It was, a, it was a fair bit of character. St Kilda were down to twenty men. Yeah, and they, you know, they had a lot of kids. They're both the, coming off the bye, aren't they? They had a lot of kids on the field. Good, interesting to see how Josh Battle goes. He played a good game against Gold. Yeah, he's been impressive so far. I'm going for the Demons. I, I think uh, you know they've they've got to win those games. I think yeah, they will. Yeah, they will. Now this one's a biggie. Three twenty Sunday afternoon. Must have Essendon, at Eddie you know. had Essendon playing. <laughs> North Melbourne. Well, it's an interesting game because the Bombers playing a lot better footy uh, lately. Four wins from the last five. Terrific win in Perth. I've got a good history lesson here. Yeah, go on. Well, it's football's first rivalry. Yeah, People talk about Carlton Collingwood. No way. Richmond Collingwood? No. The first really firm rivalry ever in football was Essendon and Hotham, and Hotham became North Melbourne. They were neighbours. They were relatively powerful teams. Interestingly, North Melbourne considered themselves to be a a city side, you know, and Essendon were considered a provincial team, a country team. And there was real resentment between the city folk and country folk, exacerbated when Essendon supporters stole saplings from the North Melbourne ground and took them back to Essendon to plant in their orchards. You just consumed 55 seconds of uh, a preview great. of 2018 talking about the 1890s. No, no, 1870s. 1870s, okay. Well, um, you know, I do like your, people should, your people should not have stolen like the people. saplings. Yeah, no, this, uh, they have done some sort of rather odd things over the years, the bombs. Marshmallows? Yeah, well, that's a more recent vintage. It's still last century, though, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, no, quickly, what happens in this game? Oh, I'll, I'll go Cracking first. game. I, I think North are, are puttering along at the moment. Yeah. And Essendon are going really well. So I think things will reverse and North will win. Yeah, I, I think I'm a kiss of death with the Bombers this year. Every time I tip them, they play like crap. And every time I don't, they win. I tipped um, them against West Coast. You did. And it was a good call, and I didn't. Uh, so it's with some trepidation... I think the Dons can win this one. I think um, I think their pace, particularly Sarden McKenna coming off half-back, that was critical early against the Eagles. Uh, I think key position players playing pretty well. Uh, like the look of Kyle Langford, how he's fitting into that midfield. Are you related to him? You, every time you throw Kyle Langford in, there's something going on. I'm going to check the genealogy. I think he's... No, but I, I think he's a long-term bet in the midfield. Um, no disrespect to the Roos. They've had a fantastic season. I just think the Bombers might have enough in them to really have a, a, a mini crack at sneaking a spot in the eight, and it starts here. So I'm going for the Bombers by two points. All right, wraps up 4.40 AEST again. Fremantle taking on Brisbane. Why did they do that? 13th v 17th. Yeah, it's not what one... A terrible way to win the round. It's not one you're going to stay glued to the edge of your seat for. Uh, it's in Perth. Uh, pretty sure Brisbane's record there is suitably awful. Uh, Dockers pretty good at home. They win for me. Yeah, yeah, Dockers. Anything else? Dockers. Okay. I'm really yeah. not interested no, in that game. No, it is one that... Uh, but you, you will watch it, though, because Bounce comes on straight after that. Bounce? Oh, that'd be good. Yeah. What's the hard... The footwear moment? They've got some boot moments. Well, I'm telling you. Fine. Cam Mooney's guns. Mm, football. I like Cam. Ex, I love Cam. I love Cam, too. But ex-footballers are funny. Yeah. No correspondence. Spud playing table tennis in a tutu? Oh, against a gorilla? Dressed up in women's clothes. You can't beat that for comic gold, really, can you? Uh, let's wind this up. On footyology, never again. All right, I'll be quick. Um, I've had my son David doing work experience with me this week. I would just like to say never again will I have a family member, particularly uh, one of my progeny, uh, accompany me in a workspace because... I've had to be vaguely uh, respectful to him, and uh, he's handled himself very well and very politely, and he's feigned interest in AFL, even though he's a soccer tragic. Um, and it's just all too nice and convenient for him. He's had a pretty easy week when he should have been working his butt off on a factory floor, seeing how most people have to spend their working lives. So never again uh, will I have a family member doing work experience with me. You know what? I I know he's your son, but he's lean and athletic looking and young. Yeah, don't think he's mine. Yeah. Yeah, we did that joke last night at Margrook too, I think, <laughs> didn't we? Well, he's, he has some Italian genealogy in him, so his skin's a lot more olive than me. No, he's a, 
He's a good kid. He's a good kid if I can rip him off his PS4 and phone occasionally. Yeah, that's the problem. All right, what's your never again? Never again will, and I've made this comment a number of times, you know, whether it's been on talkback radio where people are attacking umpires, and I've always deferred to the sort of assumed logic or the, the assumed um, fact that the umpires that we have in the AFL, the 24 or 27 that go around each week, and are by dint of the fact that they're umpiring in the best competition, the 27 best umpires in the country. And you know what? They're not. They're 27 umpires that have followed the pathways and got there, and I'm sure that at the top level, you know, the, the ones that do the grand final, I think, are really probably the best, honestly. But I watched in full the Darwin grand final during the week between Buffaloes and Crocodiles. Anybody that's watched the Nature Channel will know the Crocodiles win, but um, not without a bit of a trampling. Yeah, the Southern Buffalo, Southern Crocodiles won by point. It was a close game the whole way through, and I was actually taken by the quality of the umpiring. Decisive, less... There were certainly less packs forming that were allowed to, for, you know, form and and then multiply. Yeah, and and then increase in numbers over 10, 15, 20 seconds, which feels like hours. Quick, decisive blows of the whistle meant that there were few packs. I thought that was good. And you know what else they do really well in Darwin, which they should do in the AFL. The boundary umpires throw the ball in from fifteen meters in from the boundary line. Okay, well... I, I was, like that. Well, I like that too, and it's really funny you said that because I was talking to Tom McDonald last night and he asked me what I thought about the state of the game and he said, you know, the one thing I'd do, and it was exactly that, what you're suggesting. Yeah, they do that in the Darwin. the ball comes into the corridor, you remove half the chance of yeah. the side hitting it out but again they and did. forcing the, another stoppage. You know, the balls that were thrown in from the wing were rucked almost on the centre square line. Yeah. It was great. There were there were far less re re secondary ball ups. There were no secondary throw ins. All right, I, I I'm also a fan of quick, decisive, uh, f- closing segments. Yeah. So what is the never again in this? Never again assume that the 27 umpires that stride out for the AFL are the 27 best in the country. Okay, I won't. And I'm sure a lot of people don't each weekend <laughs> they as they follow their <laughs> AFL teams. On that note, thanks for joining us. Uh, may your team perform at an adequate level over the weekend. We'll see you soon.